their stories being told by people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Entertainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the lake to astound your family, friends, or the guy who swears he caught one this big. The headlines are ear-catching, that-can't-be-true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Michael. My name is Brenna. And the topic this week is... Nuclear it's just nuclear we, we couldn't really narrow it down uh, technically this is just an offshoot of like the cold war it's not well mine are all U- u.s government related mine are not so well, good for you good for me all right hit me with your topics that's the second time we did this by the way <laughs> you don't have to tell them that well then we'll cut it out later <laughs> that's not getting cut i know it <laughs> okay uh, are you ready for some of my stories, which I labeled Nuclear Butts Race, which doesn't match anymore with my stories? Yes, please. All right. Number one. The Soviet Union secretly contaminated Tonawandan and Niagara Falls, New York, with radioactive material in the 1950s, and these areas are still contaminated today. Okay. Number two. Roughly 500,000 metric tons of food are irradiated every year, and the FDA is totally cool with it. Oh, that's true. There's, like, we'll get into it, but I'm, I'm almost positive. Unless you changed up, like, the number, like, I'm pretty sure that's true. I don't care what you think. I just need you to pick one. Number three. The U.S. tested cheese at the Nevada National Security Site between the 70s and 80s. Poor news. No. Yeah, we definitely did. Your number mm. three is... I'm almost positive it's related to one of mine. No. I have a spreadsheet, though. No. Well, anyways, that's true. Do you want to do one after the other, and we'll see? <laughs> Would you like to do that one first, and we'll see yeah, if we have to just first. do them back-to-back? <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Let's start with the U.S. tested cheese at the Nevada National Security Site between the 70s and 80s. I swear this will not just be a joke about how explosive dairy is to the lactose intolerant. <laughs> Badumcha. I wrote in Badumcha. <laughs> Between 1945 and 1992, the U.S. conducted 1,054 nuclear weapons tests. In 1963, the Partial Test Ban Treaty was signed prohibiting the testing of nuclear weapons in the air, underwater, and above ground. So, between 1963 and 1992, the U.S. began testing their nuclear weapons solely below ground, as far as we know. And, between 1975 and 1987, from what I have gathered, from the spreadsheet, I said, (laughs) they detonated cheese. Okay, they weren't actually blowing up cheese. However, since Operation Bedrock, which was a group of 27 nuclear tests carried out at the Nevada Nuclear Security Site in Nye County in 1975, there had been at least 58 detonations that I was able to confirm named after cheese. Now, I'm going to ask you, did you write about cheese bombs? 
No, I thought this was going a completely different way. Thank you. No, this is just about them naming them cheese. <laughs> okay, well, your title was misleading. Let's go. Oh, what? The title was misleading? Oh, oh well, how the turns table. Well, let's, let's, see, let's see if I got it right. From Munster to Asiago, Havarti to something called Dana Blue, which is apparently Danish blue cheese, they were naming them and exploding them. In fact, the largest underground detonation that took place at the Nevada nuclear security site was the testing of Kasseri on October 28, 1975 which was a 1 megaton B83 hydrogen bomb that ended up with a 1.2 megaton yield, and it's also a medium hard-to-hard pale yellow cheese made of a mixture of sheep and goat's milk. Very interesting. Sounds delicious. I, I honestly was looking these up, and some of them just like, what? How are there? There's like a million kind of cheeses, and these people had them. So we've had like three. <laughs> we've had three cheeses. <laughs> Sometimes in a blend, <laughs> sold in a bag, pre-shredded. <laughs> Unfortunately, there isn't anything peculiar about these names. According to a pamphlet found on the NNSS's website, which is the Nevada... It's almost easier to just say the site's name. Uh, on their website, dated from 2015, entitled How Nuclear Tests Got Their Names, a list of names was created by the NNSS, which was then submitted for internal review. Once all of the offensive terms and terms that had already been used were taken off the list, it was then sent to the Department of Energy for final approval with input from other government agencies. It sounds really official, but it also sounds like just a lot of paperwork. However, what can be gleaned from this is that someone somewhere was in fact cheese crazy. What even is crow dye? Someone at the NNSS knew, and now I know it is a soft Scottish curd cheese, as well as a nuclear test detonation, which took place on May 5th of 1983. And now, so do you. I'm going to stop you right there. So, you're in, you're telling me that you made an Excel sheet with a bunch of names, a bunch of dates, and the cheese they correspond to, and what that cheese is. We're adding it to the show notes. Don't look at me like that. There will be screenshots of the spreadsheet on the show notes. But yes, because what I realize is I don't know any of these cheeses. And so it's kind of insane how much of this stuff could either be a cheese, could be a place, could be a place that also happens to have a cheese. Do you think they brought in a cheese sommelier to give all these cheeses? No, honestly, I think it's just one person who was really into cheese. I don't think so, because... That's not how naming things works. <laughs> because you need to have a theme for all of these. No! Well, it helps to have a theme for all the, the nuclear detonations, but you don't want it to be a theme that everyone would know, so... Do you want to know why I had to make the spreadsheet really? Yes, please. Is because... This, of course, is not unique. Throughout the same period, every other name is a ship term or some other sort of boat lingo. In the same project or operation, one might be cheese, the next one's boat lingo, the next one's a fish. <laughs> and boat lingo goes for five, six operations. You have sterns and hub... hub Holes? Holes. <laughs> My bad, hubs. <laughs> Hugs. Masks. All the seamen hug. All of the, just, starboard, everything. So you can't exactly say it's 
a theme when obviously somebody just started looking at something or was like, I'm really into this and started listing all of the things and they got put on the same list as everything else and they just pick them randomly after they've I been. I don't think so. The, the fact that there are so many cheeses on that list that correspond to the nuclear detonation, I don't... Were you listening to the part where I said exactly how they said these names happen? But who said that? Them, I guess. And them is? The NNSS put out the pamphlet that said exactly how they name these things. So basically what I'm saying is I can neither confirm nor deny that their stuff is true, but that's what I could find on it. And I will tell you not a single other person has ever cared about the fact that they're named after cheeses. So if they were trying to hide it under something, they did a damn good job. In previous testing eras, the nuclear test shared names with fish, flowers, and even Native American tribes, which doesn't seem super great in hindsight especially since they probably didn't have anything to do with these tests. <laughs> Unfortunately, after the cheese test shots, which was the nickname for the four largest B-83 tests in Operation Anvil and the other small cheeses, things got a bit dull in the mid-80s to the end of the nuclear testing era, with detonations being named simply for towns in Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, and a couple of other places. Of course, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was signed in 1996, so I guess we won't have to worry about, I don't know, what we're going to name bombs anymore. Okay. All right, for the second one. What, uh, so we had... Yeah, what's left? The Soviet Union secretly contaminated Tonawanda and Niagara Falls, New York, with radioactive material in the 1950s, and these areas are still contaminated today. Please don't make me read that again. <laughs> okay, and... Roughly 500,000 metric tons of food are irradiated every year, and the FDA is totally cool with it. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, at least, the th so the, the thinking behind it's true. So every year the FDA comes out with this with this ginormous list, and it, it states the amount of, like, X that can be in a certain food. So you can have, like, 13 parts per million of cricket parts in, like, chocolate or something like that. Or you can have, like, eight spiders per million in soup. So I imagine there's, they probably have some sort of, you can have two radiations per ton of food, and it they're, they're just going to write it off, and like, yeah, that's fine. Okay, I'm so glad you said that, because I'm glad you don't know what I'm talking about. Oh, well, <laughs> then let's go. All right, so we are going with my the next one being roughly 500,000 metric tons of food are radiated every year, and the FDA is totally cool with it. And I just want you to know, the reason why I picked this story is because I honestly had no clue that this was a thing and this is weird because we grew up like during this time like all millennial kids know should know these things but we i didn't and it sounds like you might not have either <laughs> omaha steaks schwann's frozen burgers and for our east coast listeners wegman's market ground beef aside from these things all coming from cows there's something else they have in common in 2000, the FDA approved the use of ionizing radiation to extend food shelf life and eliminate pathogenic bacteria such as E. coli and food products using three methods, gamma rays, x-rays, or electron beams. Each of these methods involves what is determined to be safe amounts of radiation penetrating food products to kill both infectious bacteria as well as spoilage causing bacteria and mold. Before food was publicly approved, irradiation was used mainly to sterilize medical equipment and other non-edible items. However, even since the early 1900s, the use of radioactive particles to preserve or sterilize food has been studied with some of the first applications being MREs, spices, and also include all of the food eaten by astronauts in space. 
how are you feeling? Like I totally misinterpreted what you what the headline was. Continue. <laughs> feels good, doesn't it? Mm. Oh, I meant feels bad, doesn't it? Mm. <laughs> and although the US FDA has approved of the use of irradiation for all food types, other countries have not greeted irradiation of food quite as warmly as the US. Things can get a bit confusing in the EU as places like the Netherlands will allow things like chicken, legumes, palms, and frog legs to be irradiated, whereas Germany will only allow spices and aromatics, although they are required to allow imported irradiated foods from other EU countries in as long as they are properly labeled. Which brings us to another difference with the treatment of irradiated foods in the US. You see irradiated food products are required by the FDA to be labeled with the Radura symbol, which we will include in the show notes. <laughs> which indicates it has been irradiated, but foods containing irradiated ingredients that are not themselves irradiated do not need any label. So, say you bought some, I don't know, something. Let's go with Kraft Mac and Cheese, and it turns out the cheese is irradiated, but the macaroni is not, because it's only an ingredient of an otherwise food that technically wasn't as a whole irradiated. They don't have to put it on there, so you don't know what you're eating that is irradiated. Interesting. Furthermore, and that's in the U.S., yeah. some Radura symbol labels vary as the government requires the Radura symbol to appear with the statement treated by irradiation or treated with irradiation near the cute green flower thing, which some containers put inches away. So there was one of the one of the examples they had, and I'll probably try to add it, where they kind of made the wording kind of see-through with the packaging, so it was actually kind of hard to see, and you can only see their... The Radura symbol just looks like a flower. Like, not a flower, it's green. It's like, they wanted it to look like a rose. <laughs> and so it looks kind of like it could be an organic thing. Oh, interesting. It doesn't look like it has anything to do with Honestly, it. Honestly, <laughs> uh, if I saw that on a package, I would think it was, oh, that's recyclable. Yes! That's exactly, it looks like, it's completely like, that has blends no in. has nothing to do with radiation with <laughs> bouncing electrons off of things into your food <laughs> if one is not aware of what they are looking at it could be taken as a variation of the organic label or as you said possibly the recycling label probably because since the fda approved irradiation for many consumer food products there has been issues with presenting the idea to the public without everyone thinking you're trying to mutate human genetics via nuclear cheeseburgers in 2001, Omaha Steaks received multiple complaints as well as a filed suit by Public Citizen regarding the fact that customers were ordering products and receiving meat with Radura symbols on them, as required by law, but were unable to find any information about irradiation of the products on the website they purchased from. So, Omaha Steaks is one of those ones where you can buy everything online and have it sent. Mm -hmm. And so, didn't say irradiation or that it was treated with, you know, radiation on their site, but... According to a Chicago Tribune article, Omaha Steaks had been referring to irradiation as electronic pasteurization as a means to keep consumers from worrying about radioactivity in their products. It has nothing to do with pasteurization. Well, it has nothing to do with electricity either. I no, it, I mean electrons possibly, but yeah, no, they're definitely that's one of those like mm, corporations trying to smooth things over with the public kind of thing. According to the article, many leaders in the food industry had been petitioning at the time to change the term from irradiation 
to cold pasteurization, since pasteurization was already an acceptable term with consumers, even though irradiation is nothing like the pasteurization process. Once again, not exactly the most transparent pitch. Makes you a little uneasy, not just the thing, but how they're treating it. Like, why would you have to cover it up if it's so safe? But I'm not saying it's not, either. We don't take a stance here. We didn't even know anything about this prior, so we don't take a stance. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Okay, he might have taken a stance. <laughs> I have a personal opinion. I'm, That's not what this is about. I'm just not going to tell our audience my stance. Exactly. <laughs> That's for in our heads. <laughs> Those against the practice of food irradiation claim that it changes the vitamin content of the food. It gives the producers the ability to be less sanitary with their processes, since the radiation will clean up what they leave in, and it allows producers and retailers to sell older products since they are not spoiling as fast. I was a little curious if because of the way that Omaha Steaks, like maybe a lot of the people that do the send high quality steaks to your house, if they do that, I wasn't able to find other ones that do that thing to do irradiation. Most of them just like do flash freezing and things. So it's go, not a... Did you go through our cupboard? I, that's what, <laughs> one of the nights I was like, I hope I didn't wake you because I dug through the fridge. I tried to find anything. I haven't found anything in our house that has the, the radura on it. <laughs> so, I mean, we might have food in here. I looked through all of the seasonings that we have present. I didn't see any, which is weird because spices are one of the first things they apparently. Really? Spices well, because don't tend to go bad, though. Yeah, but apparently some of the reason why is because they become irradiated. Like, when they you do irradiation, it, it really it so, increases the shelf life. So I'm working backwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't know that to go bad. It's like, yes, because... But... Did you check the hot dogs? <laughs> I actually don't think I did check the hot dogs. We're going to check that after. I don't know how much of this we're going to keep in no. either, because this is mostly <laughs> just us We're going on a rant at this yeah, point. Yeah, and then we're talking about our own food in our fridge. <laughs> Those in favor of irradiation find it a safe means to keep consumers from getting sick and possibly dying from pathogenic bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, and trichinella spiralis, which causes trichinosis. It's a pork thing. It can also be noted that some companies have mentioned being able to sidestep a lawsuit or two by providing the cleaner meat solution. So basically, even if you say you're queen and everything, a way to make sure you don't get sued for having E. coli in your meat, just in case is to irradiate it, and then you're like, even if it's dirty, it's clean. Which, kind of gross. It, it's like um, the old dad joke where you pull out a dish and the dish still has food on it, but it's from the covering they, to say, oh, that's the cleanest dirt you're ever going to get, because it went through the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> I have all the dad jokes in my head. But as it stands, the world produces over 7 billion metric tons of food every year. So the annual 500,000 metric tons of irradiated food is literally just a drop in the bucket. And although you likely use a spice that has been irradiated or possibly see the meat packages in the store if you live in the Midwest, most of the irradiated food in the U.S. appears to be exotic imported produce like papayas from India, mangosteens from Thailand, or Japanese dragon fruit. You know, all the things that will definitely kill us. Which... I bring up just because their whole thing is, we irradiate for safety, but it seems like because it's all these exotic fruits, they're irradiating it so they stay on the shelf longer, so that the, the papaya is still going to be able to sit there, is what it appears to imply with these kind of things. But I'm not making any accusations. <laughs> I have never heard of a mangosteen. 
I, I've heard of them, but it's not something like you just buy in a salad every day. <laughs> just have a mangosteen smoothie. I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure these are all like a uh, really niche. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of cross yeah, cross breeding. I've, I've never seen a mangosteen on Fred Meyer's website, so. <laughs> Uh, they're not paying us to say that. But that means you also haven't seen an irradiated mango steam. That's, well, if I, <laughs> if I saw one, I could probably take on good authority that's irradiated. All right. So, are you ready for the final one? Yes, please. The Soviet Union secretly contaminated Tonawanda and Niagara Falls, New York, with radioactive material in the 1950s, and these areas are still contaminated today. Okay, so... Hey, well, let me ask you something. In reference to a 2019 or possibly even earlier craze, if something doesn't spark joy in you, what are you supposed to do? Uh, I totally, I, no, I, you know I didn't watch this. Uh, it, it doesn't spark, you throw it out, you throw it out, donate it, I don't know. Yeah, you, okay, you, th you throw it out. Oh, that's, okay. that's fine, get rid of it, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not a test, and this has nothing to do with that. Well, don't set it up like a <laughs> test. And if you're looking around at your industrial gas plant, which has been converted into a nuclear materials plant, you're seeing a lot of radioactive waste, and it isn't sparking any joy in you, what should you do with it? You put it in Niagara Falls? <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, between 1942 and 1946, the Lind Air Products Division of the Union Carbide Corporation, a chemical contractor for the U.S. Army, decided to take the radioactive waste that had been really piling up after their gas factory and a former ceramics factory had switched from processing material like liquid oxygen to things like uranium oxide at the request of the Manhattan Engineering District, whoever those guys were, and just, like, put it in the sewer? And when the sewer backed up, it went into on-site wells and then into a creek when the wells started backing up because too much waste was being put in them? Sounds a little icky, huh? A little bit. According to a New York Times article published in February of 1981, the estimated amount of nuclear waste dumped in the Tonawanda locations was roughly 37 million gallons. Oh, so to specify, the Lind air thing is in Tonawanda, New York. That's where it was. <laughs> All of this may make sense if you're also trying to hide this radioactive waste in case you didn't want it to be known that you maybe, I don't know, are making nuclear materials. Another way to hide radioactive waste is to simply buy another property and just dump it all there, which also happened when the Manhattan Engineering District purchased a 10-acre property formerly known as the Hayes property and known today as Ashland Oil, where they began disposing of what is known as tailings or the residual waste common in processing uranium ore at a depth of 1 to 5 feet according to a survey requested by the Department of Energy. Well, do you want to guess who the Manhattan Engineering District really was? Oh, Jesus. Who is it? It was the Russians. No, it was the U.S. Okay, well, the next line was, yeah, there you go. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have to scribble that out because it's wrong. <laughs> That's right. That was the code name used to cover up the official project code name, Development of substitute materials. We all know that, right? No, we don't. Nobody knows that. Oh, Nobody okay. knows that. That's the super boring name for yeah, it. I thought there was an acronym. And I was trying to figure it out in my head. That's the super boring official lingo for the later dubbed Manhattan Project. 
the Manhattan Project, of course, being the project run by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to procure nuclear material with which to build and test atomic bombs. Okay, yeah, that tracks. Yes, it does, unfortunately. And although there is evidence to suggest the Soviet Union had sent spies to infiltrate the Manhattan Project, bringing back intel for their own atomic bomb program, they did not, unfortunately, have anything to do with the radioactive contamination of the Tonawanda and Niagara Falls areas. Now, I started getting into this story, and it's a lot of reading, and a lot of sifting through, and trying to figure out who said what, who reported what, what safe levels of radiation can be put where, what the DOE said happened, what the Army Corps of Engineers said happened, <sighs> what the Assembly Task Force on Toxic Substances believe happened, which projects dumped where and why, who should be responsible and for what, what the Environmental Protection Agency has done about it, and you know what I realized? This is too much for this episode. In the show notes, I will be including all of the stuff I found, but I'm not including in this story, so I suggest anyone wanting to jump down this rabbit hole, take the proper research precautions and make sure you are in a very comfy chair, because you are going to be there a while. Instead, let's just fast forward to today and what has been done and is supposed to be done because it is no longer a mystery that the nuclear waste was dumped or that the locations were not properly clean and that it is still hazardous to the health of the local communities, even if the U.S. government still refuses to acknowledge they did anything wrong. Although the Assembly Task Force on Toxic Substances concluded its investigation of the matter in 1981 and brought into the public eye the unsafe conditions the citizens of the Niagara Falls and Tonawanda areas were living in, in relation to radioactive waste, the many fights communities and environmental groups have taken up to get these locations cleaned up have either only resolved recently or are still ongoing. According to the Army Corps of Engineers Buffalo District website, in 2015, the Corps completed their cleanup of the Lynn site, the one where they were putting the stuff in the wells and down the creek, (laughs) which had been started in 1997 and removed 400,000 tons of contaminated material from the area. That took 18 years. Between 2009 and 2011, the Corps conducted tests at the now-closed town of Tonawanda Landfill, another site of Manhattan Project dumping, and concluded that the levels were safe. Until they found out, children from the local elementary school walked through the landfill as a shortcut, in which case they found it would be irresponsible to not clean up the landfill just a little bit. In 2017, they planned a partial cleanup of the first five-foot layer of contaminated soil and only finished the cleanup in December of 2019. However, since the U.S. government was not willing to spend the over $40 million to completely clean up the landfill, the site remains radioactive to this day, albeit at levels determined to be safe by the Corps. As for one of the most notorious sites in hazardous waste dumping history, Love Canal and Niagara Falls, which had been owned at the time of the project by Hooker Chemicals and Plastics Corporation, who was also a contractor for the Army, things got really bad before they got better. According to the EPA, Hooker sold Love Canal to the Niagara Falls School Board in 1953 to build a new elementary school, which was not only a disgusting disaster that caused toxic waste to become exposed, but forced the entire neighborhood to evacuate. They, like, I guess they were talking about um, walls were crumbling and would expose drums of this plastic waste. Oh, fun. And kids were literally playing in puddles of black ooze. It was really gross. <laughs> the really messed up part is that Occidental Chemical Corporation, the company Hooker Chemical and Plastics became, was sued by the EPA for the cost of restoring Love Canal and settled for $98 million in 1995 but countersued stating that the army was also responsible for dumping in the canal during the 1940s, which was 
what the Assembly Task Force on Toxic Substance had already concluded in their investigation back in 1981, and according to a 1991 Washington Post article, may have been corroborated by a stack of 20 memos that had been unsealed by the U.S. District Court in Buffalo. However, according to Justice.gov, that suit never went to trial, and it seems very convenient that the government sites and Wikipedia seem to leave any mention of it out of their accounts. Peculiar. Yeah, so I don't even know if anything happened with that. They just have, it has yet to go to trial, and that was in 1991. The Love Canal was a mess, officially considered clean in 2004, and was left to Occidental to manage the long-term care. However, to this day, residents continue to complain about seepage and health problems. The cancer rate in that area is insane. I bet. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't the Soviets. It's just us dumping our own garbage on ourselves and then not doing anything about it until, oh my god, fine, I guess we'll do something. So this story brought up something interesting. You know, there are certain companies where I think we could do company profiles on them because, like, they have so much that they have done, whether good or bad. Because you said Union Carbide, and I can think of, like, three stories off the top of my head already. Oh, my God. Not even just Union Carbide. The Lind, what it, the portion that became. So that company actually exists in, I think, Germany before this. And that building used to be their place in the u.s until 1918 or something when all of a sudden the u.s government seized everything because of world war one and those people actually were the ones that like made the gas stuff for the gas chambers and they're still around today they're they're one of the biggest gas companies and it's crazy yeah so i don't know we'll look into company profiles maybe yeah okay ready i'm ready i feel like you're not I'm ready. The United States government buried a nuclear silo because of a socket. The United States government tested nuclear pacemakers in civilians. The United States government has deemed nuclear beer safe for consumption. So that was the one I thought was related to your cheese one, but it's not, so. Okay, I think you forgot to put a lie in here. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, it happens to the best of us, but... No, there's, there's definitely a lie in there. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking what it is. It's number two is a lie because it's not pacemakers. It's something else. <laughs> That's what I would guess. What's the first one? First one is the United States government buried a nuclear silo because of a socket. I feel like that's true. Somebody messed one little thing up and they're like, oh, just bury it. That. <laughs> 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 Ta da! <laughs> well, that job's done. <laughs> they just go around shaking hands. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Good job. Good work. Congrats. <laughs> oh, no. I really. Okay. Well, I didn't get you. I'm hoping you don't get me. I hope we just. I hope we go even this, this week. Uh, well, let's go with. That's on you. Let's go with uh, the beer one. Okay. The United States government has deemed nuclear beer safe for consumption. That's weak for a lie! <laughs> During the U.S. nuclear testing of the 50s and 60s, the U.S. was trying to gather data on everything. There wasn't a single thing they didn't want to know about irradiation. One of the points of interest was commercial beverages. In 1957, the U.S. published the effect of nuclear explosions on commercially packaged beverages, which addressed the question, what is safe to consume after a nuclear explosion? Mmm, beer... The paper was based around two nuclear tests in Nevada in 1956. Do you know their names? Their cheese names? 
Okay, wait. Ask the question again. 1956 Nevada. That's not a question. No, what were the two... What were the cheese names? Havarti. And? Kasseri. We're keeping that in. I'm holding it. I don't know. 1956. Wait, let me look at my spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I am apparently the cheese... You're uh, the the cheese expert. um, Yeah, because I did the cheese research. Bottles and cans of commercial beverages were placed at various distances around the two bombs. The two bombs were 20 and 30 kilotons, respectively. The closest beverages were around 1,000 feet from ground zero, while the farthest ones were a few miles away. Some buried, some above ground. Unfortunately for the above ground ones, a lot were broken or destroyed by debris. However, there were a lot that stayed intact. The conclusion? Some of them are drinkable. Everyone got blitzed on sight? You know, they definitely had, like, uh, a bunch of privates come in and, here, have some have some oh, beer. that's exactly what they did. They got like, oh, you just got here. Cool. You're so young. Tell us, have some beer. Tell us how that tastes. In bl- Can't wait for the long-term studies on you. <laughs> In blind taste tests, the testers know that there was a slight flavor difference to about half of the bomb sodas. Nearly every beer tasted off. And as an aside, I love how after the taste test, the rest of the beverage was sent out to an independent lab for testing. So some army pond was brought in, taste a bunch of different radiated sodas and beers without knowing if it was safe. Yep. That's exactly, that's, that's, wow, that's so U.S. Army. Wow. Anyways, the independent lab confirmed that a lot of the specimens were still of commercial quality and even the ones that couldn't pass for a commercial sale would be okay for consumption. After a nuclear blast, if you can make it to the bombed out remnants of a grocery store, you deserve a beer. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to drink all the irradiated beer once, once we're all looking like, uh, like the ghouls in Fallout. Pfft, crack open some. Why not? My face is already falling off. Some of that Nuka, nuka yeah. Quantum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the United States government buried a nuclear silo because of a socket. The United States government tested nuclear pacemakers in civilians. I think I just want to pull the band-aid off. I'm going to stick to my guns and say the silo. It's true. So I should read that one next. Yes, please. Don't give me that. that don't give me a look. Sure. You can slip back out. <laughs> You'd want me to if I picked the wrong one. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> so do you know what the Titan II missile program is or was? Was that the space one? No, no, no. no that's, that's, the, that's where we built all the missiles so that we could possibly shoot them at Russia, right? Some history. Oh, God, I hate history. The Glenn, history the worst. The Glenn L. Aerospace Company was created in 1917 and produced mostly bomber airplanes for the Navy because the Air Force was a part of the Navy at the time. And as a side note, we should do an episode on the Armed Forces, like, just, at, just globally. Anyways, some of the more well-known Martin planes were the B-10 bomber, created in 1932, and one of the most well-known planes in history, the B-29 Superfortress. I'm just making aside how funny it is that we come up with all our best ideas for shows while we're making a show. Yes. <laughs> okay, we just need to go go back through this and write down everything we said. Okay. The fortress is sick. The Air Force was created in 1947 and started looking for post-war contracts. The Martin Company submitted their proposal for the Titan II missile program in 58. The Air Force picked it up a year later. 
The program proposed a missile system that could carry the largest nuclear warhead the U.S. had in its arsenal and send it over 5,500 miles using an inertial guidance system. The missiles would be fired from underground silos. This was a security issue, as spy planes and satellites were becoming a greater threat. The missiles were to be powered by nitrogen tetroxide, which is the oxidizer, and unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine, which was the fuel. So those were the propellants. Now, nitrogen tetroxide and unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine are hypergolic, meaning that when they're when the fuels are separate, they're actually pretty harmless. You can, they're not they're not very reactive. When brought in contact with each other, they ignite very very explosively. Another important reason for using these fuels is they are non-cryogenic. They don't need to be frozen or chilled in order to ignite. Oh they, yeah. They can be stored in the missile indefinitely. So these facts set the stage. Where is the stage? All 54 missiles were online by December 1963. They were kept in pods at three military bases. Davis-Monthan AFB in Arizona, Little Rock AFB in Arkansas, and McConnell AFB in Kansas. Each pod consisted of 18 missiles, each in their own underground silo. Originally given a 10-year service life, the Titan II missiles were modernized a few times, including replacing the inertial guidance system to the universal space guidance system, which was the precursor to GPS. I have an answer for your question now. Oh, yeah, okay. I think the stage is set at all the Air Force bases. Okay, I think I'm right, though. Oh. Yeah, yeah, There, I did it. Nailed it. Yeah. I was a little late. It was just because my brain was working so hard to find the information. So some fun facts about the missiles. Uh, each missile was 103 feet long, 10 feet in diameter, weighed around 330,000 pounds, Woo. had a range of 6,000 miles, and a top speed of 16,000 miles an hour. The silos were 143 feet deep and 26 feet in diameter. Each missile was produced at a cost of $2.2 million, each site for $8.3 million, and an, each site had an average operating cost of $1.9 million. Wow. That seems pretty cheap for now times. On September 18th, at Little Rock AFB in Arkansas, a technician was performing maintenance on one of the rockets. He was working on something near the top, as he dropped a wrench socket about 80 feet. Now, what do you think when I say wrench socket? I think like one of those little 16 millimeter yeah, like guys, you just click on yeah. there, you can go boop, 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 yeah, 10 mil, whatever. Yeah, you know, and like what, what do you think a 16 mil weighs? Like, oh, like a couple ounces? Yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. This socket was eight pounds. Oh, that's a big boy. We don't have one of those. AutoZone doesn't carry that. I think the biggest socket we have is an inch and a half, and it, it even that's like only maybe a pound. Did some research on this, and assuming that the socket they used was an impact rated, or basically thicker and able to endure torque, uh, this socket was probably in the area of three and a half to four inches, which is a ginormous bolt. Wow. Okay, physics. I'd like to see the nuts for that. <laughs> ba bum cha See, it works there. Oh no, it's crickets. <laughs> We're all laughing on the inside, thanks. <laughs> in a frictionless environment, an 8-pound socket reaches a speed of nearly 72 miles an hour and falls for around 2.2 seconds. It hits the ground with a force of 867 joules, about. Put this in perspective, a 357 Magnum handgun will produce around 750 joules at the muzzle. Back to September 18th. At around 6.30 p.m., the socket hits the thrust mount on the missile in the tube. 
It glanced off the missile thrust tube and then punctured the missile skin over the first stage fuel tank. This caused the missile tube to fill with the unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine. The technicians immediately vacated the missile tube and informed their command of the hazard. By 9 p.m., so about two and a half hours later, the entirety of Little Rock AFB had been evacuated. By 10, the Air Force had started evacuating the civilians that lived around the base. Yep. They're just going to bury it. In the twilight hours of September 19th, the two-man team of Rex Huckel and Greg Devlin were sent in to investigate the conditions in the silo. They found that the first stage fuel tank had been completely emptied. They moved back to the edge of the containment zone. The fuels are hypergolic, harmless enough when separate, but combust when combined. So what was the big deal? Oh, I wasn't there, so oh. I don't really... Oh. I'm not a scientist. Oh, yeah. I don't work at the Air Force. But you've dropped a socket before. I have dropped a socket. Um, did it go cling-clang? <laughs> that was a big, big deal. <laughs> the biggest danger oh, was that... Oh, okay, okay, I see what... <laughs> they probably thought that it went boom and then mixed all this stuff up and was going to explode the missile. Yeah, you're almost there. Okay, whatever. I tried. I tried, folks. The biggest danger was that the missile would collapse with the first stage tank empty. And without explaining all the engineering that goes behind pressurized cylinders, do you know what gives soda cans all their all their strength? Uh, equal pressure? Unequal pressure. All the pressure on the inside. Because when you have an empty soda can, you can crush it pretty easily with your fingers. But full one... I, that's what I said. I said unequal. Oh, okay. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty much every pressurized cylinder behaves that way. The first stage, now empty, and with fuel being more dense than air, it was just sitting in the missile silo. And like a soda can, the fear is that the first stage rocket would be too weak to support the rest of the rocket, causing it to fall in on itself, potentially exposing it to the oxidizer. Ooh. So they were afraid of the the first stage tank crumpling like a soda can, and then it, the missile teetering off to one side, puncturing the other tank, and then big explosion. And then elementary school volcano. Around 2 a.m., another two-man team consisting of senior airman David Lee Livingston and Sergeant Jeff K. Kennedy entered the silo. Their vapor detectors signaled an explosive environment in the silo and were ordered to retreat to the containment zone, but a few minutes later were ordered back into the silo to turn on the exhaust fan. Livingston re-entered, and at about 3 a.m., the missile exploded in the silo, most likely due to the exhaust fan arcing as it turned on. Oh, no! <gasps> okay, so this is about to get... Crazy. This is awful already. The explosion sent the 740-ton <sighs> launch door 200 feet in the air and around 600 feet to the north of the silo. Oh, my God. The W-53 warhead that was on the tip of the missile was found 100 feet away from the silo. Although its safety features worked pretty well, none of the nuclear material had breached its container. Kennedy was found 150 feet away from the silo door with minor injuries. Oh, that's amazing. Livingston was found in the explosion rubble after some time. <sighs> Uh, he was evacuated but died that morning in the hospital. Oh my god. 21 others were cited as being injured in the explosion. So only one guy died? Yeah, only one died. I mean, well, it sucks. Direct, directly from the explosion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everybody dies. In October, cleanup began. Debris was found all over the 400-acre complex. Tons of debris were trucked out of the compound, and around 100,000 gallons of contaminated water were pumped out of the local water table. The estimated cost to fix the base was over $225 million, where the destruction of the base was in the ballpark of about 20 The Air Force buried the compound under soil, gravel, and concrete. The land is now private ownership, but it was recognized by the National Register of Historic Places in the year 2000. So, 
Have you figured out the Martin Company yet? No. Oh, no. Is this another big reveal? The program was proposed in 1958, picked up in 59. The Martin Company merged with the American Marietta Corporation in 61, before any of the missiles had been delivered. American Mar Marietta Corporation was a producer of construction and industrial chemicals. In 1995, the Martin Marietta Company went on to merge with the Lockheed Corporation, forming Lockheed Martin. Oh, that Martin. Oh, that makes sense. Well, they did well for themselves, huh? So, this story also took a turn, and so, when we do research for these stories, the honestly, most of the time, the most interesting things are the things we find along the way. It's not actually a story. And exactly. You, you probably think the same way. So, Wichita, Kansas is smack dab in the middle of the United States. With a range of 6,000 miles per missile, that's a 12,000 mile diameter from practically the center of the U.S. With that, you can hit all of South America, most, most of South Africa, except for Mozambique, Somalia, and Madagascar. Most of Europe, the tip of Siberia. In my estimation, McConnell AFB in Wichita, Kansas was practically useless. It was incredibly useful for refueling planes, mostly because it's smack dab in the middle of the U.S. It loses thousands of miles in every direction getting out of U.S. airspace. I played around with some map tools and plotted out what a 6,000 mile trip could hit from Wichita. The answer? Pretty much anything the other two could hit. There really isn't any other strategic reason for it. It could possibly hit Moscow, and that's moving from the Atlantic Ocean. From the Pacific, it only gets as close as the Aleutian Islands. But if we need to bomb the Aleutian Islands, it's going to really be our key in for that. Wolverines! <laughs> so the Little Rock, Arkansas site was buried and sold to a private party. McConnell AFB in Wichita is still in use today. What do you think happened to Davis Month in AFB in Arizona? Uh, it turned into the airport. Well, you guessed wrong. Oh, man. It was auctioned off. I was so close, I'm sure. It was auctioned off and sold to a private party, still intact in 2019. Oh. The decommissioned site in Oracle, Arizona, sold for $420,000 last year. Oh, I guess that's two years ago. It's 2021 when we're recording this. I have no idea when this will come out. 2019. Sold. Uh, and I'll, I'll include the link in the show notes. Please, you do yourself a favor. Go look at the listing. It's so cool. It was sold in nearly its original state. There's a picture of the entrance, and it's like a 10 by 10 hatch in the middle of the desert. The listing states that there's no electricity or cell service in the site, which requires a 40-foot descent down a ladder to enter. And I actually kind of wish I knew about this. I mean, I don't think we would have bought it, but... Man, it'd be so cool to kick the tires on that. Speak for yourself. You know how useful just a hatch in the middle of the desert would be? God. I mean, I don't have one off the cuff, but it's useful, I'm sure. What's weird is the real estate ad also had a rundown of launch procedures, which are also pretty incredible if you haven't looked them up. <laughs> Look at that. Just start starts going through there. It's an act it's the actual listing. Oh my god. That's so cheap. That's for, like, a normal house here in California. Oh, wow. That's... That's interesting. Oh, wow. You really do just get a whole silo, don't you? You get an entire base. Oh, my God. You get a whole base. It's a little rusty. It, could, it needs a paint, I think. A little bit of paint. And, uh... And, maybe and a babe, couple... Babe, you got a base going. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Four hundred and twenty thousand. That is so reasonable. Yeah, that's a bargain. It 
it's, you could put it had, so much. It had water on site. In there. So, I mean, water on site. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it been go fun to go look at that? Go take the tires on it. So cool. Just like, so um. Yeah, we're considering owning a missile. missile yeah. Silo. Are these the only curtains they come? Oh, I'm just kidding. There's no curtains. That's kind of a downside. There's no curtains. In fact, there's no windows. <laughs> Anyways. You're right this week, and I hate it, because you're right for the wrong reason. Hey, you were right for the wrong reason, too. <sighs> so you've been getting mad at me for having a bunch of technicalities and almost right lies in the past few episodes. And this week is no different. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what did you think the lie was? I thought that you were lying about it wasn't a pacemaker, it's something else, but they definitely tested it. <laughs> well, that's kind of where you're wrong. It wasn't the U.S. government. It was a private medical supply company. In the 1960s and 70s, nuclear power was all the rage. One area that's glossed over, quite frankly, is the medical field. Battery technology hadn't progressed that far, and scientists thought that the small nuclear power devices were the way of the future. By 1973, multiple pacemaker manufacturers had created nuclear-powered devices. Instead of having battery-powered pacemaker that would need to be replaced multiple times throughout a patient's life, one nuclear-powered pacemaker could last a lifetime. And they were economical as well. Costing around $22,015. To put this in perspective, when lithium-powered batteries emerged, they were put into pacemakers and took the spotlight from nuclear-powered ones. In $2015, a lithium-powered pacemaker costed around $55,000. This change occurred in the late 1980s as battery technology improved. Two types of nuclear pacemakers emerged. One utilized the radioisotope of plutonium-238, and the other using promethium-147. Both were designed with various shields and layers to try to reduce the radiation exposure. These caused the pacemakers to be big, bulky, and heavy. Ultimately, the medical field moved away from nuclear-powered pacemakers into lithium-powered ones. Lithium-powered ones last around 15 years, which allows for follow-up appointments with the patients to check on them, replace the batteries, or the pacemaker altogether if technology has progressed far enough. Still, 139 people received nuclear pacemakers, and there are still people who haven't replaced them to this day. Wow. And the people who passed away, well, their pacemaker outlasted them. That's great. Good. Awesome. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I don't have any extra one. This this one this episode was really tough to write and required a lot of diligence and whatnot. So I don't have any extra little bits of info. I didn't write anything down. So did you did you write anything down? You know, I did write some stuff down. I forgot to add it to my thing. Um, but I actually on the cheese one when I was trying to look up if anybody had found the names of the cheese is weird, bombs being cheese. I found also that back when they were doing above ground testing out at the Nevada National Security Site, um, they were tracking the amount of radiation that was uh, seeping into the surrounding communities Mm -hmm. and then beyond that via milk. (laughs) And so like cows, the grass would most likely become contaminated, The, the cows eat it or the cows themselves. And then it goes into the milk, and then they'd be like, oh my god, these communities here, and it went all over the place. Interesting. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. Um, that, that was one of the ways that they were, and I tried to look more into that, but oddly enough, still pretty pretty hard to find some of this stuff. <laughs> um, That's so weird, because I feel like you could just hold up a 
a, a Roken meter to a cow. Like, it's not, that's like not the weirdest thing I've ever heard. But I think that what the the whole thing wasn't it wasn't to find out if they were radiated. They wanted to see how it would spread. So it wasn't like, a, oh no, it's spreading and it's going through the milk. We need to stop it. It's like they sat back to watch how it was happening. Mm. Okay, still kind of weird. Whatever. Oh yeah, no, weird, definitely. Um, and then there was the. Huge story I tried to cover on the bombing of, not the bombing, yeah, it's a bombing, the Operation Anvil bombing of the Marshall Islands where the, um, the Lucky Five Dragon boat was so irradiated, basically. Got caught in the bomb, um, so. But there's so much issue with that with uh, what the Japanese government says happened, what the U.S. government, because to this day the U.S. government supposedly thinks that herpes killed them, but you can't find sources on any of this. And since it was back, you know, you sound crazy. at the end of World War Two, Yeah, that's exactly. There's there's so many, like, there's a lot of conjecture about a lot of things that it's hard to find sources on because not only is it so old, but governments don't like people talking about things when they can't control it. So, and that goes for most governments. So, yeah, but that was a, I'd suggest you look into that too pretty cool not really that cool it's kind of sad anyways it was the first death of the hydrogen bomb it was from that fishing ship well i'm exhausted are you done yeah i think so all right uh thank you for listening have a good one bye for show ideas inaccuracies or general comments you can email us at the live patrol at gmail.com Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void, found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY license. Thanks for listening.